as I've told you so often before, I'm always glad to come here. I'm particularly pleased to be here today and again, God willing, next Sunday. Tell you why. Because on Thursday of this week, it will be 55 years since I stood in the 650-seater building, which was the home of Government Baptist Church. And the elders and the pastors laid hands on me and prayed for me, and I was set apart to be a preacher and a pastor. And I don't remember much of what was going on that day, what people were saying or praying. But as the brothers laid hands on me that afternoon, the Lord whispered into my ear, You haven't chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you to go and bring forth fruit, fruit that will remain. I didn't think then that 55 years later the Lord in his wisdom and love and goodness would still be enabling me to bring forth fruit. That is a huge privilege. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that our risen Lord is here amongst us, that your Holy Spirit is present with us, and your word is open before us. And Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit may take from your word what you want us each individually to hear and to receive and to respond to. Speak, Lord. We want to hear your voice. Draw near to us. We want to feel your touch. So help both preacher and listeners. In Jesus' name. Now, this, as we've been reminded already, is not just the longest day of the year, midsummer. It's Father's Day. It's Father's Day. And the Lord has led me to think with you about our fathers. How many fathers do you have? Well, every person born into this world has at least one father. Sadly, for various reasons, some children grow up without knowing their father. But somewhere there has been a man who is in fact their father. It's a very sensitive area, this, because sadly many people have had a bad experience, a painful experience. Of fatherhood. Fathers are not perfect, you know. Those of us who are fathers know that only too well. We're far from perfect. But some are less perfect than they should be. Very much less perfect. Some fathers make a very poor job of being fathers to their children. And for such people, when they grow up and become Christians, it's sometimes quite difficult to think of God as Heavenly Father. But that's what he is. Every human being has a human father. Those of us who come to know the Lord Jesus Christ come to know somebody who is our Heavenly Father. 
And then even the third strand was mentioned this morning. Spiritual fathers. So, that's where we're going today. Think first about our human fathers. Now, we all know perfectly well what a good father ought to be like. We're not going to that because it's fairly, fairly obvious. Providing, protecting and being an example to the children as they grow up and caring deeply and lovingly for them, etc., etc. We all know that. But when we come to the Word of God, we find that both the Jewish people and the Christian people, God adds something extra to all the other privileges and responsibilities of fatherhood. If we go back, for example, to Deuteronomy chapter 6, we can begin thinking about the help that is due from children to their fathers. These are familiar words, especially in the Jewish community. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them. When you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. So God is saying to these Jewish parents, I want the children I give you not only to be aware of human love and human fatherhood, I want them to be aware also that they can have a love relationship with me, the living God, as well as with their parents. And part of the key to achieving that is the fact that parents are exhorted in no uncertain terms to speak freely and frequently with their children about God, about the Lord Jesus Christ, now for the Christians. But that doesn't happen to a great extent, sadly. Even in Christian homes, even with Christian parents, I suspect that in today's world, in this country anyway, talking about the Lord in the house and out for a walk is fairly minimal. I hope I'm wrong, but I think I'm right. Now if we skip right over to the New Testament, to Ephesians chapter 6, we find there the parallel, if you like, for the Christian parents. It's particularly addressed to the fathers. Fathers do not exasperate your children. Don't test them too much in the whole area of obedience and absolute perfection, etc., etc. Don't set impossible examples before them. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, it's very interesting to observe that when the Gospel first came to Europe, the first Christian couple who had children experienced something very lovely. Because you know the story, almost all of you, if not all of you, will know the story in Acts 16 of how Paul and Silas came to Philippi and brought the gospel to Europe and got into trouble, as these preachers very often did. They proved a bit too much for the locals and they ended up being locked up and imprisoned. But at midnight there was no pity party. They sang praises and they prayed to God and God supplied an earthquake just on time 
to blow the prison open and allow freedom for the prisoners. And the jailer was very distressed. He may have heard these two Christian men praying and, and singing hymns to God. And somehow perhaps that was enough to make him feel uneasy and uncomfortable. He wasn't a Christian. And he cried out, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas answered like this. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus, you and you will be saved. You and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house, which implies that all the people in that household were old enough to make some sense of the word of the Lord that was being shared with them. So what happens next? In the middle of the night, they're all baptized. No wonder they were full of joy. The whole household had come to know the Lord in one night. Isn't that wonderful? The very first Christian couple in Europe, their parents came into the Christian faith and the children came in along with them. That really is great. Now if we turn back to the Old Testament, we'll find something a little bit depressing because we find that the Old Testament ends on what sounds in a way a pretty negative note. The temple which had been destroyed had been rebuilt but the people were careless again. They were not really paying too much attention to God. And God sent the prophet Malachi to disturb them and to challenge them and to call them to repentance and to put things right in their relationship with God. And then the very last two verses of the Old Testament scripture say this. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers or else I will come and strike the land with a curse that's the note on which the Old Testament ends and there was no other prophetic utterance for four or five hundred years until John the Baptist came on the scene so what is so important about what is said here do you know that statistics have revealed in recent years that a large percentage of the young men in our prisons are young men who never knew their father, or if they knew him they didn't think much of him. He was never around, he was not there for them. They were virtually fatherless young men. No wonder they got into trouble. No wonder they got into crime. No wonder they're locked up today. Tragic. They had no father figure in the home to love them with a father's love and to discipline them, to set boundaries for their behaviour and make sure they recognise these boundaries. Children need that. But so many children have grown up in this country in recent generations without that. And so God warns virtually if father-children relationships are not right if fathers are not interacting as they should do with their children, the nation, the community, will experience something that could be described as a curse. How tragic is that? How very tragic is that? Now just to explain, why does the Lord speak from Malachi and say, I will send you the prophet Elijah 
before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Well, we find the answer if we turn over to Matthew chapter 11. Because there our Lord Jesus explains what is meant by the prophet Elijah in that context. He says there in Matthew 11, All the prophets and the law prophesied until John, that was John the Baptist. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. In other words, John's ministry was an Elijah-like ministry. It had the same kind of impact. You remember Elijah confronted the king, he confronted the false prophets, he challenged them in no uncertain terms. And along centuries later comes John the Baptist with the same kind of ministry, a sharp, cutting edge, prophetic ministry, calling people who were thinking they were in an okay relationship with God to get real and repent and believe and be obedient to God. Well, well, well. If we go over to Hebrews chapter 12 for a minute, there's an interesting note there because these words were written to Jewish Christians who were having a hard time. They were struggling. In fact, they were being tempted in some cases to go back to their Jewish faith, which seemed more familiar to them. And the writer of this letter quotes from the book of Proverbs, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those whom he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. That's a very important scripture. Why? Because when we sense that we're going through a hard time, and God seems to be kind of displeased with us, and kind of angry with us, and disciplining us, we think it's all negative. It's all a sign of God's displeasure with us. No. It may well be a sign of his love for us. Because a good father loves his children enough to discipline them. Ah. So the writer continues, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're illegitimate children, and not true sons. We've all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits? and live enough of thinking about the help that children ought to have from human fathers they ought to be helped to get to know God way way back in centuries ago in Scotland I think maybe in the days of John Knox there was a current phrase which was understood even though it was in Latin it said in loco dei and that was applied to parents and parents were reminded by people like John Knox that you actually stand in the place of God that's what the word phrase means in God's place you represent God to your children make sure you get it right oh there's a challenge even for Christian fathers the help due from human fathers but that is not all we have to say about that why? because the Bible also teaches us about the honour due to fathers and mothers Back in Exodus 20, some of us learned these words when we were in primary school. Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. And the fifth commandment says, Honor your father and your mother so that you may have lived long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. And that is quoted in Ephesians chapter 6, where we went a few minutes ago. 
Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your mother and father, which is the first commandment, with a promise that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Now the Bible does not say, if you believe you had really good parents, who treated you fairly and kindly and well, you ought to honor them. The Bible throws out a challenge to us and says, whether your parents were good in your opinion or not, you ought to honor them. That's when our faith is stretched a bit. Because some of us in this room probably had parents who didn't measure up all that well. They weren't all they might have been. Well, none of our parents were totally perfect. Of course we know that. But some parents came far, far short of what they should have been. But the Bible says, they are your parents. And you ought to honour them. It may just be that today you've got to contact a parent and say on this Father's Day, I want you to know that I want to honour you. You weren't perfect, Dad. You weren't perfect, Mum. But I want to honour you. There's a challenge. Do you know, back in First Samuel chapter 2, verse 30, there's a promise that is so precious that I keep going back to it. Where God says, those who honour me, I will honour. That's a promise from the living God. If we honour him, he will honour us. You see, God actually wants to honour us. He wants to honour us. But the other morning in my study, I had a wonderful time in my concordance. That's a massive, great, thick book with all the words in the Bible in it. No wonder it's falling apart because it's so heavy. And I looked up honour. Ah, I got a surprise. I learned something I hadn't known before. That in the Old Testament, the word for glory, kabod, which literally means heaviness, weight, something that comes down upon us, in some instances is translated honour. So honour and glory mean much the same. And I looked at John chapter 17, and I was deeply moved. John chapter 17 is the prayer that Jesus prayed before facing arrest and death on the cross for our sins. And he prayed first of all for himself. And that's a lesson we should really learn. Don't launch into praying for other people unless you've prayed first for yourself. Because if we don't keep on track, if we don't get things right, then we'll not be able to pray for anybody else. So Jesus sets us this example. After Jesus had spoken the other words, he said, he looked towards heaven and he prayed, Father. And six times in this prayer, he addresses God as Father. Four times simply as Father, once as Holy Father, once as Righteous Father. But throughout the scriptures, the focus on God is always to call him Father. So Jesus prays, Father, the time has come, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. There's a challenge for those of us who are Christians. If we want to bring glory to God, we better be careful to see as much as we can to completing the work, whatever it is, that God has given us to do. Don't give up on it. Continue it and complete it. And then Jesus prays, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Now, I have read these words umpteen times. But the other morning in my study, they suddenly became alive in a whole new way. And I was picturing the scene in heaven. Not long before, 40 days earlier, Jesus had been dying on the cross. A pitiful figure. A corpse taken down from the cross. But six weeks later, where is he? What's he doing? He's returning to heaven. Well, I know that. Yes, but what's happening? He's returning to heaven. The portals of heaven are wide, wide open. The king is coming back. And there he is. He takes his place on the Father's throne beside the Father. Can you imagine the scene in heaven? The cheering. Ibrox Park, Celtic Park, forget it. The cheering in heaven that day. Must have been absolutely amazing. He had done the business. He had come to die for our sins. He had achieved an amazing victory over evil. And he was back home. Glorified. Glorified. He asked his father to glorify him. And six weeks later, he was glorified big time. And you know, he prayed in that same prayer that the Father would bring all those of us who have come to know Jesus to be with him where he is. So actually in measure, much lesser measure of course, but in measure we can look forward to being glorified one day in prison, to be honoured, to be honoured. I mean, it's tremendous being honoured here on earth. Well, people make great fuss about the Queen's birthday honours list and that kind of stuff. But that pales into insignificance. When we think of being honoured by the Lord in heaven, and he wants to do that for us. Oh yes, oh yes. What a thing to look forward to. Our human fathers and mothers are to be honoured. Then we come to our Heavenly Father. Now in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul writes, We, now for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come and for whom we live. One God, the Father. Let's just take a moment to remember how we become related to God as our Heavenly Father. Well, we're thinking about entering his family. You see, there's a kind of woolly thinking which says, well, are we not all God's children? Well, in one sense we are. In the Old Testament, God was the father to a whole nation. He was father to the nation of Israel. And then he was narrowed down a bit, and he was father to those who actually trusted him and sought to obey him and so on. But we come to the New Testament, and it doesn't really help us if we think that we're all children of God, full stop, nothing more to be done. That's not true. We are all his offspring. He has created us. He has given us life. And he has a fatherly care of us even before we become Christians. But we don't know him as our father. 
until we are saved, and we sang this morning, Jesus saves. So let's think for a minute about entering God's family. But our friends, our loved ones, who still don't know the Lord Jesus, who are still outside God's believing family, how do they get in? Well, it's obvious from the scripture how it, how it happens. Because we go to the first chapter of John's Gospel, and we find John writing about Jesus, and he says he came to his own, that is his own place, and his own people didn't receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right, the right, the privilege of becoming children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. And we turn over to chapter 3 of John's Gospel and we find the interview that Nicodemus, one of the Jewish leaders, had with Jesus. And Jesus says to him, unless a man is born again, and that same word can be translated from above, again, or from above, both true. Unless a man is born again, and that means being born from above, born of God, he can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is puzzled and asks for further enlightenment. And Jesus says, unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. Oh. And that's what happens, you see. When God speaks to us and makes us aware that we are sinful people and, and, and can't really have any dealings with God the way we are, and God tells us he loves us and wants to save us from those sins. And he calls us to turn around and get rid of this self-centered living and start God-centered living. And put our trust in Jesus and surrender our lives to Jesus. And somewhere in this wonderful process, the Spirit of God touches our dead spirits and they come alive. And we're born again of water and the Spirit. And baptism is meant to illustrate and confirm this. Oh, is that all? No, it's not all. Now you see, I'm spiritually alive. I have been born again. But there's more. Because I need to be adopted into this family of God. And in Romans 8, Paul explains that. writes about that. He says to these Christians in Rome, You didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. But you received the spirit of sonship or adoption, and that's the Holy Spirit, a description of the Holy Spirit, the very same Holy Spirit by whom I was born again, is now described as the spirit of adoption or sonship, and by him, by the Holy Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. Now, Abba is an Aramaic word, and it means more like Daddy. It's a more gentle word than Father. Oh yes. And this is what happens, you see, when I turn over my life to the Lord Jesus Christ and surrender to him. I experience the Holy Spirit entering my life and beginning to change me from inside. And one of the first things he does is to get me praying. You see, it's a good sign that a new baby makes plenty of noise. <laughs> baby starts making a noise, that's good news. There's life there. That life results in noise, crying. And when we become Christians, same thing. We may have tried praying before and just talking to God as if we, as if we knew him, but we didn't know him really. But now it's different. 
because the Spirit of God within us bears witness with our spirits that we really have been born again, that we really have been adopted into God's family, that we have a place in the family of God. And we want to talk now to our Father. And we start praying. Unfortunately, some people copy other people in their praying. And some of the people they copy don't have the freedom and the joy that they ought to have in prayer. We don't have to go all religions. That's the good news. I like the phrase, and I sometimes pray it for myself, Lord, make me supernaturally natural. Because the more the Spirit of God gets hold of us, it doesn't make, he doesn't make us weird. No, but the opposite. He makes us real. He makes us more natural. You see the real Sandy when the Holy Spirit's in control. Yes. Oh, yes. So, our Heavenly Father entering his family. Of what then? That's just the beginning. Well, that, after that, we go on throughout the rest of our life, hopefully, hopefully, it doesn't always work out, unfortunately, but hopefully enjoying his fellowship. The Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 1, we have fellowship. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And this wonderful word fellowship means sharing in something with somebody. You cannot have fellowship alone in a cell. Not possible. It takes two to tango. It takes two to have fellowship. Yes. And John says we have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And of course, the Lord Jesus taught his disciples, pray. This is, this is natural. You're, you're, you're believers now. You Pray. And pray our Father in heaven. Pray Father. Address Father in prayer. And when we come to Ephesians chapter 2, for example, we find that the whole Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are actually involved in our praying. This is what Paul says to these Christians in Turkey. He says, through Jesus, through him, we both, that's Jews and Gentiles, whatever differences we have outside of Christ, they don't count as inside Christ. For through him, that Jesus, we have access to the Father by the Spirit. Ah. So it's only through Jesus. We sang it this morning. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except by me. All our dealings with the Father, all our access to God the Father, is because of Jesus. And through Jesus. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. But it doesn't stop there. Paul says, no. You need to come in the name of Jesus. But you need to come under the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit. Don't just start babbling to God. Let's get the Holy Spirit helping us to pray, and then we pray in faith and on track. Ah, having fellowship with God. Do you know, maybe I'm wrong, but since I lost my wife and she was taken home to heaven six years ago, I think maybe it's a little easier for people who live alone, it's one of the, maybe the compensations to those of us who have to live alone. It may be easier to have a good time with God, if I can put it that way. And after all, when you live alone, there's nobody else to talk to. Very easy to talk to God. No special language required, no special position required, just talk, just talk. And I find that since I've been living alone for almost the last six years, yes, my, my interaction with God has become more something that goes on all throughout the day. 
Yes, a prayer time in the morning, a prayer time at night, but in addition to our regular prayer times, which we ought to have all the day long, whatever's going on, chat to God about it. Makes sense, doesn't it? Because he wants to help us. He wants to bless us. So we thought about our human fathers. The help due from them and the honour due to them. We thought about our Heavenly Father entering his family by birth and by adoption. Enjoying his fellowship. One more thing. Our spiritual fathers. Now there's not much about this in the Bible really. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 for example. Paul writes this letter to this church in Corinth. He had gone to Corinth which is a pretty pagan place, a pretty ungodly setup altogether. And he tells us that in the letter that he had gone in fear and trembling. And he was a bold person, and more bold than average because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. But even with all his spiritual boldness, he said he entered Corinth in fear and trembling. And he determined that in this place where learning was highly appreciated, where they liked the academic folk, he would know nothing. He would not dress up the gospel message. He would give it straight from the shoulder. Nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Pray, focusing on the death of Jesus for our sins and the rising of Jesus from the dead. And of course, God went to work in, in Corinth. The Holy Spirit went to work in Corinth. And many of these Corinthians became Christians. And now Paul is writing to them because they were a pretty mixed up bunch and got some things quite badly wrong. And he says, even though you have many 10,000 guardians in Christ. Now the guardian, uh, you may be familiar with the word pedagogue, it's not one we use every day in the week, but it is an English word, pedagogue. And it's a carryover from a Greek word that sounds almost exactly the same. And this pedagogue was a slave in the household who didn't teach the children, but he made sure they went to school. He had oversight of the children, and part of his remit was to make sure these kids got to school. So he was with them every day, but not as a father. He didn't have that relationship with them. And so Paul says, you know, you may have many people who have helped you to go in the right direction and make sure you keep on learning from Jesus, but you don't have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father, the gospel it was from the lips of Paul that they heard about Jesus well no wonder he claimed to be their spiritual father because that's what he was in a sense those of us who have the great privilege of preaching the gospel and teaching believers we have this peculiar role of being a kind of spiritual father to them and I guess it was probably more obvious to me because I was so long with the one church, 38 years, that you develop relationships that are very deep and very precious. And to some particularly, not all, but to some, you have a real spiritual father role. Now, all of us benefit from having spiritual fathers. Imagine Billy Graham, how he must feel. He's still alive, I think. In his old age, he's been a spiritual father, literally millions of people. That's extraordinary. Bringing the gospel to such a huge number of people. Not many people have that privilege or responsibility. That's abnormal in a sense. But all of us who are Christians ought to be seeking to help non-Christians to become Christians. 
and then accepting some responsibility for praying for them, for supporting them, for being there for them. People to whom they could turn in distress, in shame, when things went wrong. You know, some years ago, a good many years ago, I was getting things pretty badly wrong at one point. And I had to go to a wise senior Christian. He was a consultant in the Western family. And I had to say to him things, I had to admit to that man things I was ashamed of. Before I opened my mouth, he said, Sandy, I want you to know that nothing you tell me today will make me think any less of you. Oh, I admire them for that. I honour them for that. What a way to begin the counselling session. Nothing you say to me today will make you make me think any less of you. That's the kind of person I want. And a spiritual father. So, it's a case of spiritual fathers, perhaps, in the sense of those who first make us aware of the Lord Jesus first introduce us to Jesus, lead us to Jesus, help us to repent and believe, and then throughout our lives, certain people God brings across our path become, at different stages, for different reasons, a kind of spiritual father. Well, I suppose really the model of it all is don't try and go it alone. We all need spiritual fathers and mothers of one sort or another. So there we are. Father's Day. Our human fathers. Thank God for them. Unfortunately I didn't get time to know mine. It was taken away when I was 14 years of age. Our human fathers. We need to honour them. And our mothers. Our Heavenly Father. Value Him. Value Him. Value our Lord Jesus Christ. They are central to the life of the Christian and must always remain so and our spiritual fathers call upon them when they need them and be to others as the Lord leads and directs a spiritual father a spiritual mother let's pray Father we acknowledge that we all have had and continue to have a huge variety of relationships of different kinds at different levels for different reasons but we thank you for bringing those of us who know the Lord Jesus into the most valuable wonderful relationship in all the world the relationship we have with you our Father God we're so glad to be your children Forgive us, Father, for the times in which we disappoint you and dishonor you and hurt you. Help us to live in the power of your Spirit, seeking to please you, seeking to honor you. And help us to look forward to that day when you will honor us in heaven. In Jesus' name.